It's great to be here in North Carolina. I have been here before and coming here to the uh, conference this week brought back a lot of wonderful memories. And uh, we had spent um, time up in southern Ohio, uh, northern Kentucky, West Virginia, uh, visiting in eastern Tennessee, western Virginia, and of course down here in North Carolina. I had the opportunity to serve up in Cincinnati and then a little bit later on in the Bluefield uh, uh, Church in West Virginia. And uh, we got to know the people there very very well. We really enjoyed our time. We had five years here in the United States. And uh, as I said, it brings back a lot of wonderful memories. I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't forget the people here. And the reason is that when we left, they gave us a beautiful clock. And it sits in our living room. And every week I have to wind it up. It chimes every 15 minutes. Every time I walk to my study, there it is. And uh, it certainly is a wonderful memory. So, as I said, it's like coming back home. And it's 15 years, though, since we left the United States to go back to Australia and serve in that area of the world. And the time just goes by so very, very quickly. I had some people come up and introduce themselves, and I said, well, 15 years ago, you didn't look like that. <laughs> it was... Uh, a little difficult bringing back some of the memories there as to who, who was who. Well, I do bring you greetings uh, from your fellow saints in the far reaches of the world, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, uh, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Burma, India, Sri Lanka, and the islands of the Pacific. Uh, we have about just over 600 people that attend every week in those 12 nations and it is certainly a privilege to be able to work with all the different nationalities that that whole region uh, provides and presents itself. And yet God's truth in those areas is the same truth as we hear here and those people are just excited about it as all of you are. They may be a long way away, they speak a lot of different languages and yet they certainly uh, I have that zeal for God. I received some emails, even since I've been here, from people in those areas saying, give our hellos and greetings to the people there at headquarters. We're thinking of them and praying for you. And it's just very, very gratifying to realize that even though they're uh, 180 degrees around the other side of the world, they still have you on their minds. I'll just give you a brief update of what's been happening and what we are doing there. It will be very brief. But at the moment, we have five television outlets in the Australasian area. Uh, we are going to be adding another station, another television station, early next year, bring it up to six, of course. And at this present time, we receive over 300, between three and 400 responses every week from the telecast. Now, these are not major stations. They're just commercial, or I should say community stations. But uh, they are bringing in a, a, a great response, our Tomorrow's World mailing list is now up around the 15,000 when you put the uh, countries together. And uh, we are getting some very good visit requests from people, people's lives, who, who, whose lives are being changed around, and they're beginning to understand the truth. As Dr. Meredith mentioned, I will be returning home uh, tomorrow. Uh, however, returning home is not straightforward. Uh, 
Uh, it's going to take me about three weeks to get there. Uh, so when I leave here, I'll be going to Thailand and spending almost a week in Thailand. Well, the purpose of that is that uh, the, the, the region is becoming more and more unstable, uh, politically, religiously. And so Thailand at the moment is still relatively calm. And uh, I'm able to bring uh, Mr. Moses in from Malaysia, uh, our video host, who's a very zealous young fellow down in Indonesia. Um, Indonesia, of course, is a country that has 180 million uh, Islamic people living there, uh, a few Christians, but um, he is uh, uh, very, very zealous for God's way, unbelievably so. And so I'm having him come up to meet us in Thailand as well. Our local deacon in Thailand, a gentleman by the name of Mempo Saw, his, his wife is a deaconess as well, her name is Piu Piu A, and um, he is uh, hosting us in one of the border towns um, along the Burmese border. And not only that, we're also bringing in our minister from Burma, Mr. Thomas Tile Ho. Now, Thomas has never been out of Burma in his life. It's almost impossible to get a passport to get out of Burma. You, you pay an exorbitant amount of money. It just lasts for a few months and then expires. And uh, there's a lot of uh, um, um, bribery and corruption that goes on with these things. I don't want to go into all that right now, but uh, it's very difficult. But we've found a way that we can actually bring him across the border from Burma or Myanmar into Thailand. And we'll be able to have a little conference there with all of them and, and uh, talk about some of the difficulties and problems that they have. I just might mention a little bit about our deacon in, in uh, Thailand, um, Mempo Saw. Mempo Saw came into the church quite a number of years ago into our former association and um, he had uh, been a refugee from Burma. He'd been chased across the Burmese border into Thailand and uh, he and his wife went through extremely uh, excruciating times of uh, poverty, sleeping on cement floors and out in the open fields. Um, and eventually uh, they were able to be helped and got a little place to live. And over a period of time, he developed tuberculosis. He still has the residues of, residue of that in his lungs and suffers from it to some extent. But he came in contact with the church and zealously began to live according to God's ways. And now he is blessed to where he has his own house and he is able to actually have those people in that area, mostly the Karen people, uh, come to his house each Sabbath and have about between 20 and 30 people there. And he translates all the sermons that we send to him, that come from here, he has a mixture of languages. There is the Karen language, there is the Burmese language, there is the Mon, and uh, there is the Thai. So he does a job of translating into all these languages every week and trying to keep all these people inspired in God's way. And at the moment, he's just written to me and said, we have seven people here waiting to be baptized. So... Uh, uh, we uh, will be visiting with them uh, when we um, get down there to um, Thailand. But it was interesting. 
being Burmese and living in Thailand, not having any identity papers, not having really uh, any nation that he could claim except uh, being Burmese citizen, the Thai government would not acknowledge him as being a recipient of, it, of any of the government facilities. In other words, uh, he wanted to school his children. He went to the Thai school and they said, sorry, you're not a, you don't have an ID card, you don't have citizenship, we can't educate your kids. And they were just youngsters, you know, six, nine years old. And uh, Mempo Saw is a very intelligent man. He was a lawyer in, uh, in Burma, in Rangoon, before he was exiled. And he did want an education for his children. So he went to this particular school and said to the, the principal, uh, is there any way I can get my children in here? And of course they turned him down. And being a smart man that he was, he went home and he got the college, old college envoy. And he took this back to the school. And he said to the principal, he said, I want to show you something. And he opened up the envoy and here's a photograph of Mr. Armstrong and Queen Siricate being uh, presenting Mr. Armstrong with the, the uh, golden peacocks. But not only that, on the wall of the headmaster's office was the identical photograph. Because Mr. Armstrong had visited this school and had been there and talked to the students. And with that, his kids were in. And he, he said, you know, he said, is he your leader? And because uh, he acknowledged that was the case, well, anybody's leader who is Mr. Armstrong, they're welcome here. And with that, uh, there wasn't a problem. Now, his kids have gone on to be some of the top students in one of his elder boys. Older boy is the, one of the, is the top student in the school. And his um, uh, youngest son, I think, is about third. And so uh, uh, just recently, they won a competition, almost the state competition. They got fairly close to that as actually winning the uh, speech competitions in English. So... Uh, you can be thinking about some of these people over, over there and the excitement that they have for God's work and what has happened in the past history and the, the loyalty that they have had, had had over the years to the truth. It is very, very inspiring. And there's many, many stories like that I could uh, go on to mention. But just to finish up, I just want to say here, uh, at least finish up as far as the uh, mentioning that area of the work, uh, I just want to say here, there are special difficulties in these countries that you can be praying about. What we're dealing with is in Indonesia and Malaysia, it is Islamic. The Muslim religion is predominant. You move over into Thailand and you have Buddhism. You move over into Burma, once again it's Buddhism. There are different spirits of Buddhism as well that control these countries, uh, by the way. Now, you move a little further west over into India, you run into predominantly Hinduism. And then down in Sri Lanka, of course, uh, Buddhism is the predominant religion. So it is a challenge dealing with the different uh, concepts uh, that are out there. And I just might mention this. In Malaysia, of course, it is totally illegal for a Muslim to convert to Christianity. Uh, if we ever run an ad in the paper, um, not that we do that so often anymore because the internet is our, we get more responses from the internet uh, than we do by running ads in the local newspaper. But if we put an ad in the paper, 
we have to put a qualifying statement on it saying for non-Muslims only. Uh, if you're a Muslim, you can't read this ad and you can't respond to it. Uh, in Indonesia, even though it's Muslim as well, they have a different brand of Muslim belief. If you're a Muslim and you come in contact with Christianity and you want to convert, it's not a problem. And so we have got some people in our small group. We had about 18, I believe it was, that attended the feast there this year. And uh, uh, some of those have a, a background in the Islamic religion. So um, the main problem, though, is what we are finding now, and it was interesting, I was talking to Mr. Ames in the car yesterday morning on the way to the office and mentioned how these religions are becoming very militant because they find that there are Christian organizations that move in there, they offer their people money, and they're basically bribed into Christianity, if I can put it that way. They're bought in, in a wrong way. And, of course, recently we had some difficulties in, um, in Sri Lanka. And in the latest Christianity Today magazine, December 2003, just let me read a paragraph or two here to you. It says, four female Christian workers were brutalized in an attack in September and unidentified motorcyclists burned down the Assembly of God Church uh, also. Uh, so reported the National Christian Evangelical Alliance in Sri Lanka. It goes on to say that um, the chairman of the National Christian Council in Sri Lanka cited a link between these attacks on churches and the growing demand for a ban on conversions. So the attitude is there, we do not want anybody who is of our particular faith being uh, enticed to change their belief. Now, that is in Sri Lanka, but the same thing is happening in India. On the same page, they mention the uh, uh, efforts that the Christian community are making to convert the Hindu. But it goes on to say how this indeed is now causing severe opposition. And just recently, there was an Australian um, uh, missionary uh, in India, um, he and his two sons, I think they're about 11, 12 years old, they were attacked by a mob of Hindus and their car was burned and the three of them were burned to death. So there is a, a lot of opposition that is beginning in those areas. So you might be praying for our brethren there. It's not always easy. Um, and yet Satan is stirring up attitudes to prevent, really, when you look at it, we know the gospel is going to be preached in all the world. These nations do have to hear that Christ is coming. And you can be sure one thing that Satan doesn't want to have happen is that message go to them. You see, if he can prevent the gospel being preached to the world, then he can stop. You know, he can't stop it. But he, in his reasoning, thinks, well, if the gospel's not preached, then Christ won't return. And that's the statement in Matthew 24, that this gospel we preach and then the end will come. And you can be sure he doesn't want to see an end to his kingdom because that is what is, is definitely going to happen, as we all know, and that's the reason why we're all here. And so to go into some of these countries is becoming increasingly difficult, and it is something that uh, if you, from time to time at least, keep on your mind, on your prayer list, and pray for our brethren in those parts of the world. I um, uh, also... I just might mention, uh, through the internet, we're beginning to receive quite a number of responses from Pakistan, another Muslim country. 
and um, they're wanting, many of them wanting to go on the mailing list, get the Bible study course, and we're getting some good responses uh, from that part of the world as well. So there is a big work to do. There's probably about three billion people out there uh, that uh, need to be reached with the gospel, and uh, we haven't made that much a dent yet. <laughs> We've got a little way to go. So that, as I said, needs to be a part of our our, um, our prayers to God every day about getting his message to this sick and dying world, in which, of course, we pray the end will come soon and God's kingdom will be established. Oftentimes, we in life have failures, but we don't like to talk about them too much. We'd rather talk about our, success, our successes and how good we've done. But today I want to talk about, to you about one of my failures. Something that happened recently, which I hope that we can all learn from. And that was, and that is, about five years ago I received a telephone call from a young lady. She was about, excuse me, about 25 years old. And she said, I'd like to go on the mailing list for the uh, Tomorrow's World and the Bible study course. It might have been the world ahead back at that time, but uh, she was quite insistent. She said, I've got to get my life sorted out. It's been a tragedy. It's been a mess. Uh, This girl had left home when she was about 15 years old. I think she wanted to just run away. And she became an addict. And I don't need to go into all the details, the gruesome details of what happens in the life of somebody who is on cocaine or heroin. But it's a very sad commentary. Well, she had started taking some treatment to finally get off the addiction. And um, she was... um, quite um, urgent to want to do this, things that happened in her life. She was looking back on things and, and said, I, got, I, I desperately need to do something about that. Can you send me a Bible? Well, I did. I sent her a Bible. Um, we don't normally do that with people who call up and send Bibles to them. But this young girl had been brought up in the Church of God from when she was a little girl. And I felt I wanted to do that for her and help get her started back on the the right path. And she had been struggling with this for years and years, this problem. And without going into a lot of history here, we come down to the year 2003. We went back to 1997 or 8 or so. But this, between that period of time, she'd been up and down with the problems she had, trying to get off it, going back on it, trying to get off it. But we come to this year, and she had really made a determined effort. She's 29 years old now, and made a determined effort to get off the drugs. And she went on to a program, and it was helping her. And she was doing fine. We'd been visiting her and helping her and encouraging her and working with her and other members in the church were as well, visited many times, and she got into the place where she was virtually off it altogether. And so we 
said, well, come to the Feast of Tabernacles. She'd been studying about baptism and getting her life sorted out. And she got to the feast this year and just had an incredibly wonderful time. It was just really, it was, it was the tops for her. And uh, she was just so thrilled and excited about this and just went home on a high. And then when she got home, everything, I assume, was going fine. And then the Friday after the feast, I received a phone call. And one of the church members in the area said, can you please come and help? We have a problem here. So about four o'clock Friday afternoon, we met at the arranged place. And this young lady had had something happen during that week after she got home from the feast where either she didn't take a medication or there were other um, difficulties in her life. And so for six hours that Friday evening, uh, myself, the other individual involved and this young girl, we tried to persuade her that it was senseless for her to go back and try and get some money to go and buy some drugs. And, and yet that, that addiction that was still in her, in her system was just so powerful and so over, overpowering that there was virtually nothing we could do. There was nothing we could do to persuade her otherwise. Finally, by about 10 o'clock, we'd, we'd, before that, we'd taken her out and given her a nice meal and I thought we might be able to get her settled down. By, but by about 10 o'clock, and without going through all the details of the things that happened there, we managed to get her into a taxi that ended up taking her to the local hospital where we thought we might be able to have her get some professional help. She didn't want that and finally just ran off into the darkness of the night. Well, I received a phone call from her mother about 7 o'clock the next morning, Sabbath morning, and said, She's uh, in hospital, unconscious. They found her on the steps of a church somewhere. Her handbag was with her, and they found the mother's telephone number in there and uh, called her. Well, by midday on the Sabbath, she'd come out of the coma or the unconsciousness. By Saturday evening, after Sabbath services, some of the members went by to see her. She had basically recovered and uh, was sitting up and able to eat. Um, her family and friends said, please, don't release her from the hospital. Keep her here. The hospital said, well, we uh, really can't keep her here, but we do have to get the authorization from a social worker uh, who will come by and say yes or no whether she can stay. Well, the social worker came, asked a few questions, and said, well, look, I'm sorry, I can't keep her here in hospital. She's free to go. And so she was released. She had dinner that evening with uh, one or two of the members and her family. And then at 10 o'clock on Saturday night, I got another phone call. Can you please come and have another talk to her? Because she wants to go back on the drugs again. And so uh, we went to uh, see her and uh, try and talk some sense into her. But um, um, it was just an impossible task. She ended up 
going out onto the freeway or the highway and started hitching a ride because she knew where she could get the drugs and she was on her way to go there. And so I said to a couple of the members there, call the police and see if they will do something and help her. Because we don't want to see her on the road. Who knows who's going to pick her up, what may happen to her. So we called the police and the police said, sorry, we can't help you. You just got to just leave it be. And uh, I went and talked to her again and I said to her, I said, look, you've, look, you've come so far. You, you were almost there. You know, just hang in a little bit further and we'll get some help for you. And uh, I said, if you're going to keep this up, you know, this stuff is going to kill you. That was about 10 or 10.30 Saturday night. Well, I got a call on Sunday morning to say she was dead. She had overdosed or given, been given some bad stuff. And that was the end of her life, 29 years old. And I look at that and I think about, he was, he was somebody that needed help. It was out of her control. She needed someone to be able to do something for her that she couldn't do herself. And so the, just thinking about it, the drug rehabilitation program that she was on, that didn't help her. The hospital that she was admitted to, they weren't able to help her. The social worker who saw her said, well, I can't help either. The police, they weren't able to help. You know, her family and friends who had spoken to her hour upon hour upon hour, they weren't able to help. Then I came in and talked to her and tried to encourage her. I wasn't able to help. And here we end up with a lovely young lady whose life just came to a very, very sad conclusion. And it's no wonder when we we think about this, why we have to pray for God's kingdom to come. You see, this world cannot offer hope. And we ourselves, we don't have the power to even be able to help, really. We can encourage and we can exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, as the Scripture says. But, you know, we don't have the power to do anything. And it reminds me of what Christ said over here in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We've quoted this verse many times down through the history of God's church in this end-time age. But it is so true. And this verse came more to the fore in my thinking uh, with this event that happened where Christ here is giving the, giving the message to the uh, church in Thyatira. And he says in verse 25, But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. You know, right now we don't have that power. Right now, you know, the nations of this world don't have the power to solve their problems. They've got a lot of power, but it's the wrong power. And it's certainly a lot of misuse of power. And yet, when we talk about the church here and those that God has called, he says, if we hang in there to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And we see the problems in this world. I just give you the... the, the the, the life of, the, of, of one individual, one life. But we're talking about the life of six billion people right now and all the nations of this earth. And it is going to be awesome when God gives us that 
responsibility, when he gives us that power, where we're going to be able to do something about it. Right now, in the life of that little, that young girl, there was no one that had the power to do it. And won't it be wonderful when God gives us that to be able to take care of the problems and administer God's law in, in, in mercy and compassion. In verse 27, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's the power that God is going to give. And as vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I want to talk about a little bit of this today here. The power that God is wanting to give to us. The rod of iron that God has mentioned here that is going to be used to rule this world. But when you read this verse here, you think, what is this rod of iron? It's going to smash the nations to pieces. Well, if we smash the nations to pieces, what is left to rule? <laughs> so what is it talking about here? And Why is it a rod of iron? Why does it give that sort of um, finality about it, that it's a, a, a overbearing and dictatorial type of a, a, approach? And yet when we understand it, that's not really what it's talking about. I want to show, go through some of the scriptures here and first of all ask those questions. What is this rod of iron? Do we know what it is? Well, we need to have a look at that. And I want to take you first of all over here to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. Here the Apostle Paul is introducing the rulership of Christ eventually to this earth. And uh, in the beginning chapters here, he talks about how Christ has spoken to us in these last days, or how God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. And then he says in verse 8, But unto the Son he said, Your throne, O God. Christ is referred to here as God. And he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. Now this word scepter here, you can look it up, it means a rod or a staff or a scepter. It was the instrument of authority, the instrument of kingly rulership. And here Paul is actually quoting from the book of Psalms. We may have time to have a look at that in a minute. But he is saying that his scepter or his rod that he's going to use in his hand is the scepter of righteousness. And what is righteousness? Well, we know what righteousness is. God's commandments, all thy commandments are righteous. Righteousness over in Psalm 119 and verse 172. But Christ's scepter, not only is it a rod of iron, but it is that symbol of royal authority. Anciently, the kings would have a, a scepter. The royal family in England today has the scepter. And it's that scepter which really was a scepter that was to protect the flock, to protect the subjects, but also the authority to deal with any problems. And so Christ's scepter is this rod of iron or this scepter of iron. And what iron brings to mind is something that we should think about, and that is that it is stability, that it is power, that it is strength. You know, when, when John the Baptist was preaching. Let's go back here to Matthew chapter 11 just to give you a contrast and to show you the, the contrast between 
uh, iron and other types of rods and scepters. Christ outlines here in, in chapter 11, talking about John, this is John chapter 11 and verse 7. He uses the term rod or reed or scepter again here in chapter 11. He says, and as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed, or we could say a rod, a reed shaken with the wind, a man that was wishy-washy, who just blew any old direction in the breeze. No, what Christ was saying here was a man of stability, a man of character, a man who was upright, a man that wasn't going to be swayed or just by some clever argument, say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. No, I think that's a good idea now, and just go back and forth. John was a man, as we, we see here, was just the opposite to what a reed blowing in the wind was all about. He was a man of strength. And so what we are seeing from this here is just simply that this rod of iron was something that was to represent character, represent a way of life in many respects. There are scriptures that talk about Egypt. In fact, let's read it over there in Isaiah chapter 36. There is, uh, and this is mentioned a couple of times, but in Isaiah chapter 36, we find here a, a statement made about Egypt. And um, in, verse, in verse 6 of Isaiah uh, 36, he says, Lo, you trust in the staff of this broken reed or this broken rod. On Egypt, whereupon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. In other words, it'll collapse under his weight. There was no stability in it. And that's like so many people today, like this world today. It trusts in this world and its ways and its philosophies and its religions. Egypt, of course, is a, a type of this world and its society. And there's no stability in it. It doesn't know, the world doesn't know what it really believes. And it changes. It's blown in the wind. And what to them was truth one day is, is, is a lie the next. And, uh, and philosophies and, and beliefs and teachings just come and go. And yet God's way of life is that rod of iron which is immovable. And so what we need to think about in regard to our life, we know when Christ comes, the nations are going to be ruled with a rod of iron. But can we think about our calling to the truth can we be ruled by a rod of iron? Can we be ruled by Jesus Christ even right now? When we have a look at this and we see that the rod of iron is going to break the nations into shivers, it's going to just shatter them into broken pieces that are going to be worthless, then this is a question we need to ask for ourselves. How does it apply? If God is going to do that, how does it apply to us now? Every one of us, just like this young girl who was addicted to these drugs, who went back to that and it finally destroyed her. When you think about what we have done, we have been addicted to a drug that is far more insidious than heroin or cocaine. 
a drug that eventually is going to kill and destroy all humanity unless we get off that addiction. And unless we allow God to rule us with his rod of iron, you know what, brethren? The chances are that we're going to go back to where we were before and end up in a far worse state than this young girl that ended up taking her own life by the overdose. God has given us an opportunity to kick the habit, the addiction that is out in this world. I'll show you what that drug is in a minute. But God has given us an opportunity to be ruled by his rod of iron so that we can get off completely, totally, and never go back to what would ultimately destroy us. You know, all of us being called, in one sense, I like to look at it as here we are, we're all out there, we're all being addicted to this, let's say, the drug of sin. And we know the wages of sin is death. And God has called us, and we have taken the opportunity to be admitted into God's hospital. You know, that's really what the church is when you think about it. We come to Christ and to his church to be repaired to be healed. And sometimes, unfortunately, some of us want to say, I want to get out of here right now. I want to go back out there and enjoy what I had before just for a little bit longer. Over here in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, you see, we've had the opportunity and God is giving us the opportunity to totally come out of this world But as I said before, it's so easy. And I've seen over the years many people who have been called, who have just turned their back on the truth and unfortunately have given up. Perhaps they've tried to do it by their own strength and they've ended up, let's say, discharging themselves from the treatment that God mercifully and willingly wants to provide. But here in 1 Peter chapter 5, just to show you the instruction that God gives us in his word of how insidious this drug, you might say, is and how careful we've got to be of what can happen to us. He tells us here in 1 Peter 5, just a few verses here, just to give a bit of background here. And down in verse uh, verse 7, verse 8, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He knows that we've been addicted before. And if he can just get the foot in the door, so to speak, and say, here, try it again. Just one more time won't hurt. A little bit. It's okay. You can come back to where you were. But Satan is out there trying to devour us and destroy us. We have an enemy out there, and we better believe that. In Second Peter chapter 1, and verse 9, Well, I'm showing you here how easy it is for any of us, if we're not careful, if we're not vigilant, to go back to where we were. He says in verse 10, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now that we've been called out of this world, out of Egypt, out of sin, it's not just a matter of drifting along. All of us in God's church today, brethren, we better do what Peter says here. We can't take it easy. 
It's a matter of diligence. Give, as he says here, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. If we're just going to drift, you know, what category does that put us in? We could become lukewarm, just taking it easy. We can't afford to do that because there is a grievous trap there. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And as he goes on to say here, down a little bit further in the chapter in verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. You see how sin, the former way of life in which we lived, there is a danger. It's just like that young girl I talked to to you about. She wanted to go back. She couldn't help but go back. The cravings and pull there were so powerful. But eventually, the last state was worse than the first. It destroyed her. And just like the analogy that I've drawn here, if we ever go back to that, then we better believe what God has inspired in his word here. Because the end is not very pleasant. Over in Revelation 2, where we were before, we don't need to turn there, just to refer to it. God says he's going to give us the power, the power to do something about the problems of this world, the, 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 the situations that we find ourselves in, the, the circumstances we see in the lives of people. I mentioned before how we were just powerless to do anything. And yet we know God is going to give us the power to do something about it, the power to fix the problem. And I hope we don't look at this world and say, boy, I like this world. This is a tremendous place to live. I wish it stays like this. You know, we need to, I I think all of us sit in front of our televisions and see the news from time to time and say, boy, why did they make that decision? I think I could have done better there. You know, and ladies have often said to me, oh, really, I really don't want to rule over a city. And yet I know they do because when they sit in front of that TV and say, boy, I could do better than that. I know the answer to those problems. And that is God God is going to give us that power to fix the problem. But you know, before we can ever be given the responsibility of rulership, the first thing that must happen is that we must first learn to be ruled. Before you can rule, you've got to first learn to be ruled. And that rod of iron, that I've been speaking about and that Christ speaks about here is the rod of iron under which we have all got to submit ourselves. It's going to smash the nations to shivers. But you know what? It does something similar to us in our lives. And we must allow it to do it. But there's another side to it as well, which we'll come to in a minute. But before I go on, to mention a little bit about God's law here. I just want to read something to you that really gets my blood boiling, and I hope all yours as well. Because this solution that Christ has provided and given to us, and it's there for the world if they would have the eyes to see, the solution is laughed at. It is thought, this is crazy, this will never work. And I just want to read a quote here to you from 
This is from the Sydney Morning Herald. It's one of the leading newspapers in all of Australia. They took the entire width of the newspaper to actually uh, tell the story here. had a fairly prominent position in the paper itself. But the title of the article is Good versus Homosexuality. The last stand for the Bible quoters. In other words, what it was saying here is, you want to quote the Bible, go ahead, but you're not going to be able to do it for too much longer. In other words, God's law, this world, and these people here that I'm going to read to you about, just totally laugh and ridicule anything God says. And this comes from people who call themselves theologians. I learned something interesting about theologians. I always thought theologians studied the Bible. But I discovered theologians don't study the Bible at all. Now, they study their own ideas about what they think and who they think God may be, but they don't go to the Bible to find out who God is. Well, this this article starts off, I won't read it all, it just says, it was Professor Sarah Coakley, an Anglican theologian at Harvard University, who described the church as being something like a swimming pool. Most of the noise, she said, comes from the shallow end. Okay? That's exactly my sense when I listen to the debate over the issue of homosexuality taking place in today's Christian church in general and within my Anglican communion in particular. The noise, and it is very loud, comes from those who define this issue as a moral battle between God and the devil. To maintain this attitude, they must elevate a pre-modern definition that sees homosexuality as sinful and an evil practice engaged in by people who are either morally depraved or mentally sick. Against this distorted practice, as they call it, they assume that God has called them to do battle lest all morality disappear from the Christian world. They cite the sacred scriptures, which they seem to believe God dictated. Now, here's a theologian, a church theologian, a religious theologian, saying some people think the Bible's inspired. (laughs) Some people think God actually wrote it. And you just see the attitude there. We don't believe in this. We can be a Christian, but you don't have to have a Bible to be a Christian or even believe in it. And And this person goes through here to explain how The Bible has collapsed under the weight of scientific evidence. How, for example, the the divine right of kings anciently in England was uh, was upheld supposedly by what was written in the Bible, as it says here, but they came to see that democracy was a better way. And then they said uh, Christians believe the earth was the center of the universe, and they upheld their belief by appealing to the Bible. But science has now shown that the Bible was wrong. <laughs> now, this is their thinking, okay? And then it says, now here's, here's one that'll really help you along. The Bible was quoted, and still is, in the less enlightened parts of the world to prove that women are not to be priests and bishops. Well, it's quoted here. This must be one of the less enlightened parts of the world, you know? <laughs> And now it goes on to say, the battle over homosexuality is thus a kind of final battle and a last stand for the Bible quotas. This is the last frontier, so to speak. 
It is quite simply not a battle between light and darkness as homophobic church people try to pretend. It is a battle over consciousness over new definitions based on new scientific medical data that are invading and winning the minds of educated people, which is a total lie, but they present it as truth. You know, they call the, 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 the truth, the, the, the lie a truth, and people believe it. And then it goes on to say, quoting a sacred text like the Bible, which came to be written into written form between 1000 BC and 135 AD, is strangely inappropriate to this new consciousness. No one would go to a doctor who sought authority for his or her medical practice in a medical textbook written in that period of history. In other words, since the Bible was written back then, why should we go to it now for our religious beliefs? We are free to invent our own ideas on what we think should be done. And just to end up very quickly here, one psychiatric association in the U.S. has referred to efforts to change a person's sexual orientation as an act of pastoral violence. So ministers who counsel people who want to change their life and repent and obey God are going to be classified as being violent pastors. <laughs> pastoral violence. You see how Satan is turning the whole world against God's way of life, against God's law. And then, uh, finally, at the end of this paragraph, uh, that is a reality. That is the reality where the Bible is in our churches between the definitions of yesterday and the emerging new consciousness of today. One can no more hold back new truth, and this is regarded as new truth, than one can stand on the shore and try to hold back the incoming tide. Quoting the Bible will not save this losing effort. Indeed, in time, it will render the Bible quoters quaint, irrelevant, ignorant, and even laughable. And Mr. Ames, that's what you're in for. Mr. Meredith, because the whole world is going to be turned upside down when it comes to anything regarding God's way of life. We're going to be laughed at. We're going to be ridiculed because we want to hang on to God's truth here. Now, this has a lot to do with us being in God's church today and the calling that God has given to us and what he wants to do with our lives. Come with me to Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 24. Proverbs 13 and verse 24. There is instruction here that God gives in the raising of children, child training. And I want to apply it in a little different way today. He says in verse 24 of Proverbs, He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him many times, or does it quickly, takes care of the problem. And here we are, we have come into the truth. Our minds have been opened through God's spirit. We have been a part of this world. We have been addicted to its ways, its concepts, precepts, whatever. God says, look, come out of her, my people. I want you to be healed of that way you've been living. And one of the ways that God does it is that he gives correction. He does chastise us. Hebrews 12 tells us, you know, if we are without correction, we are not his children. And God does and will take care of us. 
And how does he do it here? He says, he that spares his rod. See, when Christ returns, he's going to use that rod of iron to smash the nations. When we come into the understanding of the truth, we have got a lot of things about us that God doesn't like, that don't conform to his way of life or his thinking. As, as we so often hear, we've got to let this mind be in us that is in Christ Jesus. And how is God going to do that? You see, there's a, a thinking that we have that takes us in a wrong direction. As the scriptures point out, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. We can just read it in the next, next chapter here. But that wrong way of life has to be reprogrammed. We have to come to understand God's way. I'll just take you back here very quickly to First Samuel. It's the story of King Saul. I don't necessarily intend to go through the account here of when Saul was asked to kill the Amalek and the Amalekites and the sheep and the cattle and everything. And of course, he didn't do it. I think we're familiar with the story. But what I want to bring out here in 1 Samuel 15, down in verse 22, that there are two ways of life, two spirits. And one spirit has to be broken, one spirit has to be destroyed, one spirit has to be, you might say, ruled with a rod of iron that allows it to be broken to pieces. And here he says in verse 22, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken better than the fat of rams. So he talks about obedience. That's the way to go. If you're obedient, there's no need to sacrifice. But he says in verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now that's Satan's mind, his thinking, his direction. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected uh, uh, you from being king. God has called us to be kings and priests. And if we reject the word of the Lord, that's the same thing that's going to happen to all of us as well. But I, I bring this out because that attitude of rebellion that way that seems right to a man, the ends thereof being the ways of death, has to be dealt with. And one of the ways that God does it is, of course, just like we read in Proverbs 13, that rod is going to be what causes us and compels us to go in the right direction. Over in um, Proverbs 22 and verse 15, back in Proverbs 22 and verse 15. Once again, God uses this the symbolism of the rod. He says here, Proverbs 22 and verse 15, foolishness. Now, the, in, the, in the Proverbs, you really read about the wise and you read about the foolish. They're so often contrasted. And so here he's talking about foolishness. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Now, that's the natural way that children want to go. As we grow up, if we're not directed correctly, we will continue on that path of foolishness. Now, before God called us, we were a part of this world. The world that is headed towards death and destruction. 
but we're called out of it. And in that sense, and I think you can see the parallels and the analogy there, that way of God we never learned. The way we learned was foolishness. It's the foolishness of this world. And yet God has got to get rid of that from us. He says, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction, God's law, shall drive it far from him. And by the same token, if we read Proverbs 29, so often we go to God and we say, oh, we read the scriptures over in James. Ask God for wisdom and he will give it. Well, here's an interesting scripture you might consider about how you receive wisdom, how you learn. Proverbs 29 and verse 15. He says, the rod and reproof give wisdom. Sometimes when we go to God and we ask him for wisdom to clean us up, to help us live right, to have the right thoughts, to make the right decisions, sometimes we might be just asking God, well, I need a little bit of correction. And I hope we can all do that and ask God to continually clean us up and, 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 and use his rod of correction and give us that reproof. Because, you see, that's how he's going to make wise children. That's how he's going to drive foolishness away from us. That's how when we come to appreciate what he's doing, and as we more and more walk with God and with Christ, the more and more we are going to want to resist, ever wanting to go back to the way of life that we lived previously. In um, Proverbs 23 and verse 13, Proverbs 23 and verse 13, just a few scriptures here, just to show us how that rod of iron needs to be applied personally in our lives as we come to understand the truth. Here in verse 13 of Proverbs 23, it says, hold not, hold, withhold not correction from a child. You know, God lives by his own word. And you can be sure as he looks at us, he sees us as his children, you say, well, here's somebody that needs a little bit of correction, and at the same time, they can learn some wisdom along with it. Withhold not correction from a child, for if you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and shall deliver his soul from hell. And so all of us who have been called, you might say, as I said before, into God's hospital to re receive treatment, sometimes the medicine doesn't taste good. But you see, when you look at this here, you shall deliver him from hell. And we, can, we should get excited about that and realize that God is doing this to us deliberately so we can turn away from this world and not have to imbibe of that society out there. And more than anything, brethren, I can't, can't stress any more than this, that we have got to forsake that way. Don't be tempted to go back there. We are constantly being bombarded through our television sets. Come and join me. Come back here. You sit there and watch it. You've got to sometimes analyze how much time am I allowing Satan to entice me? Now you go through and look at your television viewing. And you've got to all do this for yourself. How many hours do you spend listening to Satan's word as opposed to reading the Bible and studying God's word? Who has the greater influence on our minds? And we need to think about some of these things because Satan wants to draw us back. He wants us. He's, he's not happy that we've left his world. 
He wasn't happy when Israel left Egypt. He wanted them back. Some of those Israelites wanted to go back. And you can be sure he's not happy when we have been called out of his clutches. And he goes about, as we read before, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom he can get back under his control. And so God is going to administer his rod of iron in our life. Now, I mentioned about King Saul before, and those two ways of life, obedience and rebellion. And here in Psalm 51, we find there's a lot more that could be said on some of these things here, but in Psalm 51, we find King David acknowledged this same thing in his life. And he records for us here about something that needs to be broken, you might say, with the rod of iron that Christ has in his hands as he rules his kingdom and as we, he allows, or we allow him to rule in our lives. Uh, Psalm chapter 51, you remember it's the psalm where David comes to repentance after his uh, uh, sin of adultery. And he talks here about just how he was pulled away and, and, uh, and, and what had happened in his life. And how in verse 6 he says, God desires the truth in the inward parts. And he says in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. David asked for that correction. You know, that's a hard thing to do for any of us. You know, think, how's it going to come next time? <laughs> what form is it going to Can I take it? Well, God's not going to do anything to us that we're not going to be able to bear. But he wants to clean us up. And we need to be like David and be prepared to be purged, as he says here with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide not your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. But as we come down in this psalm to verse 17, David mentioned something about his character that needed to be taken care of. And he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. You see, that is a spirit that is not going to stand up against God. That's not a spirit that says, I don't care what's in the Bible. We'll make up our own religion. That's not a spirit that says, I'll do it my way. That's not a spirit that conforms to what we read in Psalms, in, in, um, in Proverbs, where it says there is a way that seems right to a man. You see, that was the spirit that Adam and Eve had. When they took of that fruit after God said, don't eat of it, their spirit was, no, we'll work it out ourselves. We'll do what we want to do. You see, that spirit they had needed to be broken. And so often we want to do things our way rather than do things God's way. And just like a horse that's never been broken in, and it has that wild spirit about it. I know there's the horse whisperer method of breaking them in, but there's the old system where they would just ride it and, 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 and just finally break that spirit. When you put the bit in the mouth and the, the saddle on the thing and the bridle and, 
and then finally you were able to ride it and the horse came under the command of the of the rider. And that's like us. We have to submit ourselves to God's way. And that spirit, that human spirit in us that wants to do things our way or go back to this world and enjoy the pleasures of this society, that's the spirit that God wants to see broken. And the way it will be broken is if we submit ourselves to God's scepter of righteousness, his Ten Commandments, and submit ourselves to Jesus Christ as our King of kings and Lord of lords. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and God cannot, if he cannot rule us, if our spirit is not broken, if we want to resist him or we want to argue with him, then let's read on. He says, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If we want to resist God, then we're going to be far from him. He's not going to be with us. We want to do it our way. We're going to find ourselves in a lot of trouble. And that's the spirit that Saul had. That was that spirit of rebellion. And that's not the attitude that God wants to see in any of his his children. In Galatians chapter 5, in verse 17, the Apostle Paul talks about these two spirits, Satan's spirit, God's spirit, Satan's way of rebellion, God's way of obedience, and here in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 5 and verse, verse 17, Paul says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you are led of the spirit, you are not under the law or under the penalty of the law. And he talks about the works of the flesh. And then in verse 22, he goes on to talks about, talk about the fruit of God's spirit. And so, brethren, we need to think about the, you might say, the treatment that God wants to administer to us. We have willingly admitted ourselves to his, you might say, hospital, his church. We've come in among God's people and we've actually said to Christ, I want you to clean me up. I want you to get me off this drug of sin that will actually destroy my life. I want you to look into my inward parts. I want you to get that spirit of rebellion, that human spirit there out of me. I want to be able to do and live according to your ways with the help of your rod of iron, your Ten Commandments, of course, with the help and the aid of God's Holy Spirit. And so as we think about what we're going to be doing when Christ returns, God's not going to smash the nation so that then there are none left, but he's going to administer his laws. And the spirit of the world is going to be broken. And the world, as we know, is going to come under that authority of Jesus Christ. Now, we might think, well, you know, that's pretty harsh in some ways. But, you know, when you come to the submission and come under the submission of God's law, something else happens. And I want to take you over here to Psalm 23. We sing this uh, psalm, and I think we'll begin to understand just how strong, how stable, how supportive 
God's laws really are. And if we do this, if we can submit ourselves to the correction that God has for all of his children, and as we learn to live according to the commandments that he gives us, Psalm 23 is in our songbook, psalm that everybody knows, and yet when you look at it here in verse 4, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, there is a calmness that comes from living according to God's commandments. He says, great peace have they that do thy law, and nothing shall offend them. You know, that's the confidence we can have. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be afraid. We can have that rod of iron as a support not one that's going to topple over, not one that's weak and that we don't know what's going to happen. Now, that rod of iron will give us confidence. It will take away fear. He says, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So, yes, God's rod of iron, in one sense, if we submit to it, it will smash our spirit so that we can come to the place where we can take hold of that rod and it is going to give us incredible comfort and strength and stability. We can rely upon it and it's going to be the one thing that the whole world will look to when Jesus Christ returns. Yes, the Bible is not going to be laughed at and scoffed at, not like people want to do today and are going to do and are going to do even a lot more as the months and the years roll by but it's going to be a rod of iron which the world is going to take incredible comfort in. So, brethren, let's thank God that we have the opportunity to be ruled by God's rod of iron now, that we have been called out of this world, that we have the opportunity to allow God to correct us, to mold us, to destroy that human rebellious spirit that's in us and begin to submit ourselves to Christ as our King and our Lord and our Master. What's good being here, visiting with you all, and I look forward to meeting you after services.